0: Education is an economic issue, if not the economic issue of our time.
1: Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg.
2: And I'm Khanna Jaffe Walt. Today is Tuesday, January 25th, and that was, of course, President Obama. You heard at the top during a speech to the Urban League in July.
1: He's apparently going to be making another speech tonight.
2: I've heard that, too.
1: Yep. Today on the program, we consider a plan to dramatically grow the U.S. economy. The plan has nothing to do with banks, stimulus, tax cuts, the Federal Reserve. It is a plan that focuses entirely on public school teachers.
2: Public school teachers, it has long been said, are the key to America's greatness. And today on the show, we have the numbers to prove it. That's coming up. But first, our Planet Money indicator from Jacob Goldstein.
0: Today's Planet Money indicator is negative 0.5%. The U.K. economy shrank by half a percent in the last three months of last year, according to numbers out today. And this is really a big surprise. Uh, one, one economist called it staggeringly weak, the U.K. economy. It's been growing slowly, and, and economists expected that to continue.
2: And uh, I've heard part of this actually has to do with the fact that basically it's been snowing. <laughs> it's right, bad
0: weather. Right. Like, you know, you think of all these complicated things people try and do for the economy and then snow comes in, right? <laughs> right. It, you know, I guess it snows and construction crews can't go out to work and people don't go out and do as much shopping. And so, so it definitely does have an effect. Nevertheless, it's pretty clear that even without the weather, it would have been pretty bad still for the U.K. in the last three months of this year.
1: But, of course, there's something else that people have been blaming these bad numbers on, and that is the austerity measures that were recently passed in in Britain.
0: Right. Last year, last spring, the U.K. elected a a new government, and and the big push for this new government has been to, to cut the deficit. Of course, we've been hearing a lot of this stimulus versus austerity debate in the U.S., and we've been hearing it in the U.K., and stimulus basically means borrow and spend more money to help the economy in the short term. Austerity basically means... Spend less money, you know, maybe raise more taxes, fewer deficits, even if it means we take this short-term economic hit.
1: And it all comes down to what you think is the worst thing for the economy. The people who really want austerity say a big debt, that's the worst thing. That's the worst drag on the economy. You've got to get rid of that big debt right away. And then other people say, no, no, don't worry about the debt right away. We have to – there's other things that we need to worry right. We about. Right.
0: We've got to keep it going right now. Yeah. and. and- it's sort of an impossible debate ultimately to resolve. I mean, in the U.K., we can look in the in the medium term, we can sort of answer this weather question. We can say, you know, in the first few months of this year, how does GDP do? And that'll be like the, the sort of lowercase answer to this question. But like the the uppercase answer, you know, the big answer to this question is is essentially impossible to get to. It's it's sort of the permanent macroeconomic debate that, you know, it's kind of whatever you believe in, you can always say, well, we would have been right. If you would have done it our way, the economy would have been
1: better. But it is possible also that if like they enact this austerity plan and then the numbers are really, really bad for the next year and they don't have growth or they have like shrinking GDP, a lot of people in Europe will be watching that and saying, oh, man, we might want to reconsider our austerity measures here. Yeah, definitely.
2: Thank you, Jacob.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. All right. So, Hannah, we are not done with GDP on the program today because we are talking to a guy who would say all these stimulus versus austerity debates, they're beside the point. Because really, when you're talking about GDP, what you really need to be talking about is teachers?
2: Yes. And that guy's name is Eric Hanushek. You talked with him, Alex. He's an economist for over four decades. He's been looking at educational research in particular. And he came out with this paper recently that caught your eye. And, and basically, the idea of the paper is that he's trying to place a value, a monetary value, on good teaching.
1: He's looking through his economist's lens at this question that I have been thinking about a lot basically ever since I was a teacher myself. What is good teaching and and what is it worth?
2: Yeah, I always forget you were a teacher. You taught... Did you teach science?
1: I did. I taught seventh and eighth grade science for four years uh, when I was in Chicago.
2: And you wondered if you were good or not?
1: I did wonder if I was good (laughs) or not. I mean, I sort of thought I was good, but I have no way... Even today, I have no idea. And that's the crazy thing, is you think you know what makes a good teacher or not, but then when you're in front of the kids, you're in the classroom, you really have no idea. And that's really... Profoundly strange. Like most professions, you go into them and you have some sort of metric to judge yourself. You know, like you know, and 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 also you know if you go to school, they will teach you how to do the thing. You know, you can go to engineering school, and when you graduate, you'll you'll probably know how to build a bridge that won't fall down. But when, if you graduate from education school, there's no guarantee you're going to be able to manage your class or teach your students effectively at all. I would see thirty year veterans who would just slam the door. And scream at their kids all day, and then I'd see third or fourth-year teachers who were very, very calm, and their classrooms were very placid, and they would both have said, like, no, no, I'm I'm a good teacher. This is what you need to do. And they were both doing totally different things, and there was no way to tell, like, who was right. And it turns out even experts, people who study this all the time, can't tell what makes a good teacher. Here's Eric Hanushek.
3: We've spent a lot of time, and this is the holy grail of much education research, is to try to find the ingredient or ingredients that lead to a really good teacher. And the research has simply failed.
2: It sort of makes sense why it's hard in particular to figure out what makes a good teacher. Because if you think about, like, are you going to judge teachers by grades, by how well their students do in their class? But that's something that the teacher decides. The teacher assigns grades. And I certainly had teachers who gave me really good grades and teachers who gave me bad grades were probably equal work.
1: Right. It's very subjective. Super super
2: subjective, right. So then do you do you judge teachers based on classroom evaluations? You go and watch them teach. Okay, well who's gonna do those evaluations then it's the principal, maybe, that's also super subjective. Do you do it by by test scores? Well test scores don't seem fair because, you know, one school has a bunch of kids who are much lower income or another school has kids who are not being well fed at home, and so they're maybe not going to test as well. There's just way too many factors.
1: But Eric Hannershek says there is one method of evaluation. It's not perfect, but it does bypass a lot of these other problems. So here, here's his method. You use the test scores, but simply to measure improvement over time. So let's just say I'm a teacher, and let's say I get a kid coming into my class at the beginning of the year. They're scoring a five on whatever standardized test we're using in my state. So when they come into class, they're scoring a five. At the end, they score a seven on the same test. You can attribute at least some of that improvement to me and my excellent teaching skills.
2: Right. And then if every other kid in your class, in Mr. Bloomberg's class, are also showing the same year-over-year improvement, then that's even more evidence that Mr. Bloomberg is an excellent teacher. So maybe your kids, you know, would come into class reading at a slightly below grade level. But if you're really good, they could leave reading well above grade level.
1: Conversely, if, say, they come to, oh, I don't know, let's pull a name out of the hat, Miss Joffie Waltz classroom, (laughs) (laughs) they could lose ground, you know, they could come out reading below grade level. So they start at grade level, and then by the end of your class, they're... I'm sorry, Miss Joffrey. Waltz <laughs> class, they're below grade level. And this kind of variation between teachers at the exact same schools, working with the exact same populations, this is very common. A top teacher will basically get
3: a year and a half worth of learning in an academic year. And a bottom teacher will get somewhere around half a year of learning in an academic year. Wow. Now, if you think about that for a minute, it says that in one academic year, one kid can be a whole year ahead of another just because he got the right teacher.
1: Right. And 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 one teacher and a and a good teacher is getting three times as much learning as a bad teacher. That's right. And this is, these are consistent results, right? From year after year after year, the same teachers will produce, these, will produce a year and a half of learning and the same teachers produce a half of year of learning, no matter who their students yes, I mean, that's are, what no matter they're, what, they're, what they're teaching, that sort of thing, right? Those, these are consistent results.
3: I mean, precisely. That, that's been a lot of the research to make sure that they're consistent.
2: So Eric Haneshek says once you have this research and it shows you year over year how students are doing in one particular teacher's classroom, that's the first step towards answering the question – What is the value of a good teacher? The second step, and this is where, to me, it got really interesting, involves looking at what happens once those students leave the teacher's classroom.
1: And here we need to mention another piece of data that educational researchers have known and continued to verify. Higher-performing students tend to earn more over their lifetimes than their lower-performing classmates. So let's imagine, again, my classroom, all these kids in my class who got sevens on the standardized test. Well, let's say your kids only got fives and sixes on average over their lifetimes. That means that the kids in my class who got the sevens are going to earn more money than the kids in your class who got the fives and sixes.
3: They earn systematically quite a bit more over the, in particular, over their lifetime. Right, and and, so, and this,
1: and this is, so it, it put in sort of like human terms, valedictorians tend to earn more than than class clowns. But but uh, but but you're saying it's it's sort of it's it's true no matter where you fall on the scale, on the spectrum. In other words, the person who's not the valedictorian but does get B's has a higher earning potential than the person who gets C's, and that person has a higher earning potential than the person who gets D's, et cetera, right?
3: Absolutely. Systematically, we find that people that have more skills, as measured by our straightforward math and science test, earn more in the labor market. They're, on average their earnings will go up and they will stay up over their entire lifetime.
1: Now, obviously, this isn't true for every student. You can't apply it on an individual basis, but this is just sort of statistically in aggregate that is true. So these are the two data points that we now know. We know kids who score higher tend to earn more. We know that when people earn more, the GDP number that we talk about all the time, that gets bigger. The overall economy improves.
2: Because the GDP number includes how much everybody in the economy earns.
1: Exactly. And we know that certain teachers can get consistently higher test scores than average. And voila, that gives you one very crude monetary measure of the incredible value of good teaching.
3: If you um, think of a teacher that can move a student forward, um, she's she's worth, with a class of 25 students, over a half million dollars a year in terms of added value to the economy.
2: half a million dollars
3: a year. Half a million dollars. Each and every year that she does this with a a new class of 25, she adds half a million dollars to uh, earnings and productivity in the economy.
2: Oh, so that's why all my teacher friends make a half a million dollars.
1: (laughs) Well, unfortunately for your friends... That is not how teachers are paid. And I don't want to assume anything about your friends, Hannah, but there is another side to this whole equation. Uh, the least effective teachers, teachers who start the year with kids below grade level and end up at the end of the year with the kids even further below grade level, those kids will go on to make less than they otherwise would have, right? So they're, they're not like the kids in my class who are improving their test scores and also at least statistically their future incomes. Statistically, these kids in lower-performing classes, they're having future income taken away from them. It's like they're getting demoted 10 years before they even enter the labor force just because they had the bad luck of getting an extremely poor-performing teacher.
2: And those bottom-performing teachers, they do the opposite of good-performing teachers. They have a huge negative impact on GDP.
3: If we could replace the bottom 5 to 8% of our teachers with just an average teacher, if you project out over the next... 80 years, which is the lifetime of somebody born today, and calculate what's the current value or present value of that, you get numbers that look like $100 trillion. We've had this two-year debate about the recession in a stimulus package of $1 trillion, mm-hmm. and we're saying that there's $100 trillion still sitting on the table
1: And you're saying that we can do that simply by firing the worst 5% of our teachers and replacing them with just average teachers.
3: That's what all of the research suggests, yes. That's that's the simple bottom line. Now, how we actually do that is another matter. It's not saying uh, whether we fire teachers or we make them better. It's not saying anything about how we do it. Mm-hmm. But it just says if we could replace the bottom 5 to 8% of our teachers with an average teacher, it could be worth up to $100 trillion to the U.S. economy in added income and uh, gross domestic product.
1: This is a number that we ought to take a pay, pay attention to. I think. <laughs> I think so. I mean, it does seem like what you're saying is sort of putting into numbers what what I feel like people know on a gut level, which is that teachers and learning is, is is sort of is the most important thing that that we as a society can really be involved in. You know, it's it's the basis of all our wealth, of all our prosperity, pretty much. And yet, the people who do this for us are not considered, are not that valued. And, and, and what you're doing is you're putting a number on, on this sort of, on this truism that we all, I think, feel in some way or another.
3: Well, I, I think we feel that education is important. I think what these calculations do is to put it in terms that are so stark that it shocks everybody. I think there's a lot of head shaking and nodding that says, oh, yes, education is important and we ought to get on to that without realizing how important it is for our future well-being.
2: Okay. So Heneshek's got clearly a very interesting idea. He's offering this method of figuring out who our worst teachers are and clearly making the argument that there's a huge benefit to identifying them and making them better somehow or replacing them. But like a lot of economic ideas, it's really nice in theory. If you take it and apply it to an actual school district, though... Becomes messy in practice.
0: Is it fair to publish teacher ratings? One gauge of who's good and who's not. A bitter fight today in Los Angeles about ratings publicized in the Los Angeles Times.
2: LA. Taking an economic theory dollar and dollar putting dollar it into practice, LA this time. is actually happening. School districts across the country are using this method of looking at year over year student improvement as a way of evaluating teachers. But a lot of districts are doing so very tentatively, like in Los Angeles, which you're hearing behind us. They collected the data, but they didn't do anything with it. In fact, the LA Times actually sued the school board to get this data and then published it. They named over 6,000 teachers by name, and they put their grades, how effective they are at improving test scores year over year. And this is what happened. These protests were part of the brouhaha that resulted People basically saw this as an unfair attack on the teachers. Like, all of a sudden, if you're a teacher, there's your name published in the paper alongside a grade that says, you know, you're average or you're less effective or you get the worst grade, you're least effective. And that is all based on this one metric, test scores.
1: And I totally understand this, like, teaching is so hard, you get paid so little, and all of a sudden there you are on the paper as if you're the enemy, you know, after years spent doing nothing but trying to educate children. And, you know, did the paper talk to you about your late night spent grading tests or your hours spent after school helping to counsel distraught teens? No, the paper did not. But that's not to say that teachers like the system that we have, you know. Ask most teachers, and they will agree I'm going to go out on a limb here, that Eric Hanerschak is right, that they are undervalued. Uh, if you get a beer in them, they'll probably come up with a teacher or two that they think would be better off leaving the profession. And a lot of them say, yeah, the system is really bad at helping you know if you're doing a good job or not. There's this Washington Post education reporter, Jay Matthews. He writes this education blog called Class Struggles. Uh, you get it? Mm-hmm. Um, and he quoted this email that he'd gotten from a friend of his. It's a public school teacher in California. And the guy wrote something that I think really gets to this. He wrote, quote, "...in 10 years at my high school, I can honestly say I have no idea who the stars are. I know teachers who are popular among kids, and I know teachers who teach seemingly awesome lessons, but I have no objective knowledge of which teachers are producing results and which aren't. More to the point, neither I nor any teacher I work with has any idea whether or not we ourselves are producing any results compared with other teachers." In my years of teaching, neither I nor any teacher I have known has ever had a single, meaningful, objective evaluation of their teaching outcomes, nor have we been given the means to objectively evaluate our performance ourselves. Tell me what other profession is like this. A link to Eric Hanushek's paper. And also we'll put a link up to the Los Angeles Times series where they rated all the teachers, all the 6,000 teachers in, in Los Angeles. That'll be on our website, npr.org money.
2: You can send us email at planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Facebook. I'm Khanna Walt,
1: And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening.